Welcome to Palkus's Next Gen, the show where we discuss issues related to young Portuguese Americans ranging from 18 years old to 35. Our goal is to ensure that our culture strives by focusing on the achievements of the latest generation, with the hope of discovering their secrets to success and continuing to inspire the Portuguese American community at large. Because in our community, Nosh got next and Nosh got now. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Hey, thank you guys for having me tonight. Yeah, we really appreciate it. We're looking forward to discussing. Yeah, I am very excited. I have been very excited about this all day. Yeah, it's, it's not often that you have uh, somebody with experience in like business and as an author. That's, that's a really cool combo. We're really excited to get right to it. But first, we'll start with a, a quick question about, you know, what are your Portuguese roots? What's your connection? Yeah, so both my parents are Portuguese. Um, they were actually both born there. They are from the Serra da Estrela area. Oh, my dad's from near there. Nice. Yeah, it's always fun to to meet someone from around there because we love cheese. I mean, I'm assuming. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I feel like that's a safe assumption to make. Um, so yeah, no, it's, I grew up Portuguese. My grandmother here only spoke Portuguese. So that was my first language, really. And I kind of learned English when I started preschool, I would say. So it's been embedded in me since being born, really. And what what uh, specific, like, Alvea near there? Mm. So I am from Vila Suedo do Chão. Both of my parents are actually, their families are from the same town. And it's part of the Fornos da Alvodres okay. area. So like, we're right like the little Alvea. Oh, Seia. Okay, yeah. nice. Well, like, but I use the beta, but like. Okay, yeah. I've heard of that. I mean, we've eaten there at like Museu do Pão and right, we drive yep. through it. So yeah, I'm familiar. Very cool. You go there a lot or? Every few years. So we were supposed to go there last year. I'm actually headed there in two days. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> so I'm excited. Sounds good. Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, hoping that you can sort of give us sort of like your pathway to the position you're in right now. And yeah, if you just sort of give us your sort of background, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. So when I went to college, I was actually a poli-sci major. So I was really into policies and the government in general. I thought I maybe wanted to go into law school, but I was kind of exploring. I feel like the college years are tough because you get into college and you're like, hmm, I actually really like this elective class and it's not my major. So let me kind of try a few things out. So I did four years. I graduated as a poli-sci major with a minor in English because I've always Love English. Literature was always my favorite subject throughout elementary school, high school. So I was taking so many English classes already. I was like, I might as well just make this a minor at this point. So throughout college, I always held some kind of part-time job. And for three years, I actually worked at a bank while I was in school. So when I graduated, obviously you're then looking for something within your major, whatever that means, right? Because I feel like you're kind of just looking for something full-time. And I was at the bank. I was a part-time teller, obviously not a full-time position. Nothing was opening up there. And I knew this is not the path that I'm going down anyway. So let me start exploring career opportunities. So I came across the company that I'm with now, and they're a fairly large company I, there was an executive assistant position open. I really just wanted a full-time job. I was hungry to get into the real world, to start feeling out even past the college, right? Like the real world career paths and feeling out what makes sense and what fits. So I figured, okay, executive assistant, this is a foot into a company with tons of other offerings and I can maybe feel it out and just get a foot in the door. So that's how I started. When I started, I always, I told my hiring manager once I got the job, not during the interview, but I told him, you know, eventually I do want to do more. I do want to kind of feel out what other job opportunities there are here while I'm in this position. And he was really supportive, which was awesome. So once I hit that two-year mark, I committed to at least be there in that role for two years. And I started exploring other departments I started offering up my help on projects, kind of just throwing myself out there to see what can I get on and who's willing to give me a chance. So that's when I got into my my department of implementation. 
So pretty much implementation, we focus on bringing on new clientele, what their experience is, obviously coming in the door before you kind of let them off into the service realm, which is their established clients. And at that point, it's just, you know, maintenance and customer service. So we are kind of that first impression once they sign off. So I got into that. I did a few leadership programs. My company thankfully has a lot of leadership development programs. And luckily I had really good leaders that were willing to give me the chance. And I feel like that was pretty important. That was an important part of the journey for sure. So I did a few leadership development programs. Eventually I landed into a leadership role managing a team. And then from there, that was my last role. So the role I'm currently in is a director of strategy for implementation, but that was kind of a, the pathway in, in a nutshell. Okay. So, um, yeah, could you just like share with the listeners sort of like, what's the name of the company and, and just sort of like your day to day, like, what does that mean to be the director of strategy of implementation? It's like a mouthful. I know. I mean, I feel like nobody knows, right? Like my parents probably don't even really understand what I do. So director of strategy of implementation. So I work at ADP. um, So behind a lot of paychecks, I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) So that is the company. I actually for eight years was in the retirement department. So I think a lot of people hear ADP and they either think the security company, which is not us, or they think payroll. So I was in the retirement 401k division. I learned a ton there because they also offer that. My current role is actually in the payroll sector, which is really exciting because that really is like what the company is primarily known for. So what I do is pretty much all the teams of implementation, right? They're all in charge of bringing on the clients, making sure they're having a good experience, being set up the right way. So as director of strategy, we really look at What is our strategy with process? What is our strategy with the time of year, right? With everything going on the past year, there needed to be strategy behind that. How are our teams functioning? How are our clients functioning? What are some things we're listening to? So we really kind of work behind the scenes to mold the strategy behind that experience, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and your clients, it's not like individuals, right? It'd be like businesses and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. It would be businesses coming on to sign up for their companies. Okay. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, hearing more about that, like, are there any lessons that you think you got from your, your very Portuguese upbringing that help you on a day-to-day basis or help you get to where you are? I would say the grit that comes with being Portuguese. I feel like that word always stuck out to me in kind of the career journey. I feel like we are just, maybe it's in our blood, maybe we're raised to be this way, but we keep pushing for what we want. So I think we're also good at tuning out the noise, right? A lot of people came here and started with nothing and kind of developed their own paths. So again, I don't know if it's genetic or it's just innately like embedded in us. I think a lot of us have seen that. We've seen the paths kind of get carved out. So that helped in the journey because I think it would have been easy to say, poli sci, I need to like tunnel vision, right? And stay in this. And what can I find? And if nothing comes up, what do I do? And the same for executive assistant. I think it could have also been kind of tunnel vision with, well, where do I go from here? So I really think just having the determination to carve out your own path when it's not necessarily presented and like shown to you was huge. You're speaking my language now. I, I love it. Um, yeah. So I, like, I'm just to go back just a little bit, because you said you grew up with two immigrant parents, that kind of thing. And like learning Portuguese as your first language, because you didn't learn it until you said preschool. Yep. Yeah. Like, and then, you know, to get a minor in English, I think it's funny, like a lot of people, I think, struggle with this when they, when they start to have children or like there are different ideas. And I think and some of that's changing over generations, but like, in terms of like when to expose a child to like the dual language thing and are they going to be put in ESL classes? I don't want them to be behind in English or feel different or this kind of thing. And I think like, I know some of my cousins that even though they were born here, they, you know, they were in certain classes and that kind of thing. So that experience, I was just hoping you could maybe like talk about it. And then, I mean, obviously because it's, you know, the, the minor, you know, it just, you don't just fall into it. Right. So this is something that obviously you're passionate about. And, and I think sometimes people like mistakenly think that it holds people back, but I mean, obviously some people struggle. So um, yeah, yeah, if you could just tell us a little about the experience. Yeah, totally. So really with English, I, 
I remember being like a fifth grader because I remember that teacher and I remember just loving stories and the stories we would read. And I liked grammar and uh, like punctuation, where to put a comma. For some reason, I was really good at it. Like if you asked me to do integers in fifth grade for math, that was kind of where I drew the line. But English, I kind of always, you know, lean towards English. I just liked every element, not just the stories, but again, how to spell and grammar and punctuation and all that comes with it. So I think because I was good at it, I think when you're a kid and you're good at something, you're like, I love this class because it's not hard, right? It's, I get it. I think going into high school, there was more opportunity with writing in itself, right? So there was a magazine and there was a publication specifically for poetry and for writings. And I think having to do some of those assignments, I kind of fell into the groove of, okay, I I can do this. I can write. I can write an essay. Like, this is no big deal. So it became less about it being easy and more about maybe this is a skill that I just am better at, right? I'm not good at the chemistry, but this works for me. So that's where I think it was a little bit of passion. It was a little bit of it, it, again, just kind of came. And when it came to poetry specifically, I had the opportunity to publish a poem in my high school's poetry publication or like their literature publication. And that was really exciting for me. So they actually allowed me to go to it's, I don't know if they still have it, but it was the Dodge poetry festival in New Jersey. And I couldn't tell you how big of a festival this is, but I think in high school, they're like, this is the biggest festival in New Jersey. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So I went and I was like, this is amazing. There's poets reading and there's authors reading. And it was, it was so cool. And to me, it just kind of lit a fire and I kept writing. And I always just had kind of a binder of writings. I would just type it out, pop it in one of those like plastic sheets and and throw it into that binder. And then English, it was the same thing. I think English, I had probably little to no intention of ever majoring or minoring in English. And because I liked it, I found myself in a lot of those classes as electives. So by the time I realized it, I'm like, hey, two more classes and this is a minor and I can actually put this, you know, as part of the degree because I love it. So I think, I think that was, it was interesting. I don't know that there was ever thought behind how the bilingual, like how starting with Portuguese then kind of transitioned. I will say I'm a mom and I have a two and a half year old daughter. This has been a huge topic in my mind since she was born Um, because we're not primarily speaking Portuguese at home. My parents are not living with us, right? So she's not hearing it all day. And that's actually what fueled the books because it was the, this is tough. I heard it all day, which is why it was my first language. I heard it from three people she's not hearing it. So it worries me to, to not give her the gift of a second language because we're always English, English, English all day. But then it's tough. When do you transition? And my husband and I going in, we're like, okay, perfect strategy. I'll speak Portuguese. And my husband would speak English because someone said that worked and their kids are like fluent in both. It just, it didn't happen. Like realistically, it just doesn't happen during the day. So it's tough. She knows words now, right? She knows how to count to 10. You have to set time aside, but I don't know. It's tough. I think the struggle with when to do it, I don't know that there's a science, but I think if they learn it and they pick it up, right? They say they're sponges the first few years. I don't know if it really, I think it's, it'll be good for, I think they're going to pick up both and not have like one interfere with the other, if that makes sense. Yeah, you mentioned it as a gift, and I think that's exactly right. Like, I don't know about you, Caleb, but I actually spoke Portuguese first as well. I was born and raised in Kansas, though, so like it was a real concerted effort by my parents to like really speak that at home mainly. But I know Kayla too. Like, I I was actually like introduced to Kayla through her blog and through blog posts that I read. And I personally like I write as well. So I wonder whether there's something to that bilingual, like being raised in a bilingual household that maybe makes you a better writer or makes you just more perceptive about certain things. That's really interesting. I think one thing, as you mentioned that, because you guys are also both writers, I don't know if you guys have a poll to Favu, but I always felt like the lyrics to Favu were so 
they're just deep. I can't even think a word yeah. of a word right now. They're just like really deep and like feelings are there. So I think it's, I don't know, maybe that helps again. I don't know how or why, but maybe it helps really like be able to put things on paper and write them out, like transform feelings or thoughts into writing. Yeah. I mean, if I had to, if I had to get, because me, I, I, English was my first language. I went to Portuguese school. It didn't really take, there was a lot of spitballs and paper airplanes. And so I didn't last <laughs> long, but, but yeah, I do think it's like, I think part of what, what makes certain writing interesting is because it straddles different worlds. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I do think, so I think it's like part of the, might not necessarily be the, the language per se, at least in my, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, <laughs> but at least in my case, I think, I think the, the cultural upbringing is, you know, you have a different perspective. And so you're finding something that you live in two different places at once, even though I've never been like today's or where my parents live. But yeah, I think, I think there is something to that. Like this idea that, I mean, too, it's like when you don't see yourself represented, right. And I imagine this must've been something with the books too. I'm not, I'm not familiar with a whole lot. I know Angela, you know, of Calcus, but <laughs> that's, that's pretty much all she needs for the title. Um, uh, has written some some books, but I'm not I'm not totally familiar with that that market. That there's a a ton out there, right? Yeah, no, you made a great point. Actually, even with the point of kind of straddling both worlds, that's so true. But with the market, there might be what I saw because when I thought about the books, it was actually before becoming a mom, so it was like two or three years prior. And when you search Portuguese children's books, what I saw is you get a lot of Brazilian Portuguese yes. yeah, and yeah. you can learn it. The language is the same, right? It's Portuguese, but of course in dialects, there's some words that are different. And I noticed that with TV shows too. And Rosetta Stone, it's funny because I, I don't know if it's still the case, but a few years ago, Rosetta Stone's Portuguese was also Brazilian. So can you learn the language? Yes. Will you learn the same dialect? No. So that's where my wheels kind of started spinning with the Portuguese from Portugal market. And yeah, I mean, there's not much out there, but again, I'm sure in Portugal there's tons, right? It's just here when you search, you're, you kind of get the quick, here's Peppa Pig. I see this on YouTube. So I'm going to mention Peppa Pig because we watch it all day, but like Peppa Pig does have Portuguese. They have Portuguese from Portugal, but the first ones that come up are typically the Brazilian version. And again, you'll, you'll get it right. That's great. It's better right. than nothing, but it's just not exactly the same dialect wise. Right. I guess I was more talking like people that like authors from here, I guess I'm not really from, I mean, I'm, I'm sad, you know, I don't have children, so I, I don't, I don't often search for children's books, but I have shopped for my cousins and stuff. And so, yeah, I was, I was curious too, for your books, like, um, could you tell us a little bit more about sort of what they're exploring and and the the age groups in which they're intended? I think people, you know, if you're trying to buy a Christmas gift or something and it's like you're not you're not the one with children, you're kind of like, where is this appropriate <laughs> for this child? Right. So, yes. <laughs> so my books are children's based. I actually have them. I'll grab one here. Um, so it's a, right now it's a series. It's the Stella series. And it's a children's books and, and pretty much it was based on true stories. So it's true experiences. And the idea was always there to blend the poetry with Portuguese in a way to teach it. So the verses are written primarily in English, but they have at least one word in each verse that's Portuguese and it rhymes, it all rhymes. So the Portuguese word just slides right in. And the thought with that is, lyrically and everybody's different but sometimes it's easier for people to pick up lyrics and kids to pick up songs because it oh, just yeah. goes so that's why the thought with poetry and I'm I also always did poetry so that's kind of why I went that way um so it's meant to teach but the what really lit the fire under getting the book out and getting it started and actually taking the idea and making it happen was last year we couldn't go to Portugal right flights were canceled and I was so sad that it had been years since I had seen my family and that my daughter was a year and a half and she still hadn't met them. So I think a lot of us who have 
you know, had time with family and especially the two worlds, right? You're straddling the two worlds and you have the memories of Portugal and how different it is. And those memories are awesome because you hold on to them. It's always a memory you tell your like non-Portuguese friends, like, oh my gosh, you know, I used to go every summer and this is what we would do. And it's like this whole new world. And honestly, I got really scared that my daughter may never have those same experiences with the same people because the reality is time passes, right? So the book really came from that. So the story Stella is, the character was really based off my daughter and the characters in the story, like Avaw and Avaw. Uh, and now we incorporated our other Avaw into the second book. So it's fair across the board. Um, <laughs> so they're based off my grandparents, right? And it was really two things. One was I wanted to have to place my daughter in the experiences I loved. And I just wish she could experience as well with the same people. And then the second part is I wanted to relive those experiences and I wanted to relive them forever. So in book form, the you relive it forever. And the goal is that anybody else with similar experiences can do the same thing. That's so cool. Honestly, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's like a dream, right? To be able to put that down, to put down those experiences and to pass them on to future generations to come. I imagine, are you planning a third one as well? And what are the first two about? Uh, yes. so, books or children, be specific. <laughs> oh, I mean, I guess yes to both. We'll see. <laughs> well, a third, we got to work on the second child, but the third book, I would love to do a third book. I actually, um, this one was just published what day is it literally within the last three weeks it was yeah it's this one has been in the works for almost a year now and so the first one is called Stella in the Villa and what that one's about is my two grandparents who are still in Portugal in Vila Suedo right in the Serra de Estrela and it's Stella's regular day. It's you wake up, you feed the chickens, you have grandma soup, you go visit your primus down the street, and then you go to the festa right in town. So that's what the first one was about. That one was really a pull of this is Stella's day in the Aldea, and she's not from here, right? So there's that travel element that she's visiting. The second one is Stella in the kitchen. And so this is with another grandma, her other grandma, and they are baking bread and bishkoituj, and they're getting ready for a big party. And so this brings back the memories of just uh, wishing I had asked my grandmother all her recipes when she was like still doing it because, you know, she would eyeball things and you're a kid, right? And you're not paying attention. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, I wish we could go back and we could bake all day together and I could write down the recipe and save it. So the second book is about that. It's funny you mentioned that actually today I was, I was thinking about that earlier. I made called Verde and I made pound for lunch. Nice. So I was thinking like, you know, I wish I, I wish I could go write these down. So I'm lucky enough that my grandmothers are still cooking or still active. Um, I live with my grandparents in undergrad. So I like picked up some of those recipes, but like, as you know, it's impossible to get it just right. I don't know what it is about these, uh, you know, kind of proportionless recipes. They just have it in their minds it's all magic of the eyeball. They just exactly. know what they're doing. No, it's true. I think, I think my whole family has been trying to recreate like my grandmother, she passed a long time ago, but, uh, they've been trying to recreate this like chocolate dessert and none of them can do it right. Like. And it's like, I still, I don't have the heart to, I'm like, it's all right. <laughs> it's like, it's never going to be the same, but um, you do mind talking a little bit about the, um, the publishing process for like someone who may be interested in writing a book with a children's book otherwise, but. Yeah, totally. So the publishing process, I am self-published. Um, so I did not work with a big publishing house and I looked a lot at the pros and cons of it. And I think, um, uh, definitely a pro is you have creative autonomy, right? You're going the self-publisher route, but the other pro is you're not waiting for a publisher to pick you up. And then that could be a very long process. So this, you're kind of just doing it. Um, so self-publishing, there's a few different, I want to say, I don't know if they're publishers or they're like printing services out there. I'd call it more of a printing service. So I know Barnes and Nobles has a service. Amazon has a KDP service, they call it. Ingram Sparks is actually the service I went with. 
And pretty much what they do is they facilitate distribution. So depending on who you're going with, it'll kind of tell you where your book will get pushed to. So what I mean by that, you go through Amazon, they'll for sure put it on Amazon. You go through Barnes and Nobles, they're for sure putting it there. Ingram, um, they push it to a few different stores like Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, um, and everything's, a lot of it is print on demand. So it's a good way as a small writer, you're not buying a ton of stock up front. And if somebody orders a book, it gets printed and it gets shipped. Um, and there's a lot of different specs that you choose throughout the process, but really for a children's book specifically, children's books are big on illustration. So one of the biggest parts I'd say was finding an illustrator to help design the book. So once you have that, once you partner with somebody and obviously that's could be a lengthier process. So that's where the second book was definitely a lengthier process for the illustration. Um, and then from there, you pretty much get all your stuff into a file. I mean, this gets a little like logistical, right? So you could get like an editor to help you with it, or you could get someone who knows the format files specifically for what you need to upload. But then you really upload them to whoever you're working with, um, at least from my experience. And once you go through the whole approval process and make sure there's nothing off with the files you submitted, um, distribution can start. So then your book is out there and yeah, it's exciting. And then you can kind of see where it goes. Where, where, where can people find the books? So you can find these on Amazon. They're on Barnes and Nobles, Book Depository. Um, I found them on a few other sites like Blackwell's that I think is based out of the UK. Um, so I'll definitely find them sometimes in other spots like Walmart or Target but I'd say the probably the three main ones are Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and Book Depository. Cool. It, I don't know if you if you said it and I maybe missed it, like the the age groups for the, the oh books. age groups. So age groups, I'd really say, I mean, it's definitely child based, right? So I feel like when you're entering the like teenage high school, this is probably before that because I don't I don't know. I mean, they could they could like it, but I'd say really any child probably from, geez, I'd say like newborn, if you want to read to them to maybe like 12. And especially if you want to teach it, like I know children that aren't, they don't have Portuguese parents, they're not Portuguese, they don't have the background. But because it's just one word in every verse, it could also be used for that for somebody that wants to learn. Um, so yeah, I'd say probably up until 12 would be the right age range. Yeah, I was going to ask about how you found some of the resources that let you get into the space. For example, finding an illustrator, uh, somebody like me, I would have no like no clue where to go. So how did you navigate that? Yeah, so that was a doozy. That was, that was tricky. So I joined a few different sites like they have Fiverr, Upwork, where you can pretty much hire freelancers. There's other sites specifically for creative, but I always tend to use Upwork a little bit more. So from there, you do a job posting. You can also manually search through somebody that like tags the skill. And then from there, it's a lot of interviewing. I'd say that was the most time consuming because once freelancers obviously are interested, they start applying, then it's you sorting through to really find the style that you want. And that for me was the trickiest because I would see some illustration and I'm like, nah, I don't really like that style. And then I would see another one that was closer, but then you're kind of working out logistics, pricing, how long it's going to take the whole process. So yeah, I'd say that's how you find one for sure. I'm sure there's other ways, right? I'm sure you could meet somebody on the street that tells you they're an illustrator. And then that's like, great. That's how I found, uh, found mine. And then, yeah. And then it's just finding the right fit. I'm curious, like for the, the style of it, like, trying to do poems and then trying to rhyme and having a, like a Portuguese word here and there and sort of I, I'm curious like what was the sort of inspiration I guess behind that and like what made you think like this is this is the way I want to do I want to tackle this particular project honestly I think because again poems for me are kind of the lyrical like yeah. quick quick anytime that I've done songs for like work. I remember years ago at a part-time job, we were doing, um, oh my gosh, what was that song? Friday by that singer. It was Rebecca like, Black. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, and I like whipped up the quick song with lyrics. Like, so that for me, putting things into poems was, I really enjoyed it. And it, it uh, was fun for me to do. 
I think with the Portuguese, it just came to that. Like, it would be so cool to have it rhyming where the children learning are doing it in English. So they get the major gist of what's going on. And then you just slide in that Portuguese word and it makes sense because they have everything else they need to, to know what you're talking about there. So that's kind of how it came about. I just hadn't seen it. And I just thought that was a good way to learn it. Because on the on the other side, if I wrote fully Portuguese, and I have some fully Portuguese like stories and poems that I'd love to get out. But I think doing a full Portuguese book, if I were to read it to my daughter, who's in that learning stage, she probably wouldn't understand what I was saying. And then fully English, we have tons of other books to do that with. So the, you know, almost fully English with some Portuguese, I feel like was a good, a good middle spot. And how do you balance the time, uh, the time demands? Because like, you know, working a pretty impressive full-time job, uh, having a young child, writing a book, dealing with the global pandemic. These this sounds like a lot. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I have balanced it, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's a work in progress. I think that's probably the biggest work in progress is this past year has had no structure. Like I am primarily still working from home. You're doing everything in these four walls. So there's no division of like, I can go focus on work for eight hours and then I get home and focus on dinner and my daughter and bedtime and husband and everything. And then do the book at night. Everything's just like, there's no organization. So I feel like balance is, I think it works when you enjoy what you're doing. So I think that's an easier way to balance because it's, you know, you're finding times sometimes instead of sitting on the couch and watching something on TV, because I enjoy the writing, I could commit to finishing the second book, let's say one night, right? That was my relaxed time, which is probably sad, but because I enjoy it, it worked. That's kind of how it worked. That's I don't know that that was a helpful answer. I feel like my balance. No, it's an honest answer though. Because yeah. it's like work in progress. I feel that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Pro tip. I think, I think the, uh, the sort of lyrical stuff works way beyond the childhood years. Like um, in law school, I was like sort of struggling with, I, I, they tell you in the beginning, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. So it sort of connects with what we were just saying. Like, um, in terms of balance and something that I've struggled with as well. And uh, I remember supposed to be like studying for, you know, final exams, this kind of thing. And I just like totally wiped out. And I just remember like I had wrote down these, like in my head, they were like poetry slams, but they had like, you know, sort of legal terms here and there, mm-hmm. whatever. And in lieu of studying, yeah, not recommend, but, um, and then I, you know, I, re- I had some music playing behind it. So, and then I like recorded it put it up on you know one of those sites um that's probably like defunct now but anyway so I was like doing this kind of thing and I just remember like people saying like uh like oh I really like that rap and I was like well, I don't fancy myself a rapper but you know I, I think sometimes like um like like it's such a cool like notion with the book and stuff and I think sometimes like if we find other media too to like have you ever thought about trying to like maybe mixed media or that kind of thing or I mean maybe not a rap necessarily but you know this, this kind of thing <laughs> Hey, you never know. <laughs> I'm, th- I'm thinking like, you know, like Dora or something like this. Right? Dora, was a- Dora was it. A- no, absolutely not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Dora was kind of like this big thing, right? For, you know, speaking Spanish, it yeah. taught a lot of kids like some basic Spanish. Yeah. Um, and so I-, I was curious, like, if you ever thought about like expansion, obviously you have a lot on your plate, so I'm not trying to <laughs> put more on there, but... I have thought a little bit about it. I will say sometimes the songs... My, my daughter's in the stage now too where she'll kind of just start singing a random song and it's sometimes I'll start singing a random song at home. So we're just like making up words to tunes now. But I think I can totally see it. It's not something I've like really thoroughly thought about, but because poems are, I feel like you could easily put them to a tune. Yeah. Because it's like sometimes you're reading a book and it kind of sounds like a song because it rhymes. So yeah, I mean, totally in the realm of possibility I might just need musicians because I'm not a singer so we have plenty in that network everyone's played the band come on (laughs) oh man um you know something actually like just to switch gears just a little bit I know you had mentioned like um you working on sort of the retirement 
uh, department you talked about like 401ks. I think a lot of young people don't, I mean, I didn't know about 401ks and it was kind of like foreign to me until I got in the workplace and was like, what are they talking about? Would you, would you mind just sharing a little bit about sort of breaking that down for people? Oh yeah, totally. So 401ks, let me see how I can break 401ks down because they are intricate, intricate (laughs) sometimes. So I would say a 401k has a lot of different ways it can be designed for the company, right? So everybody's employer is different. They're going to choose different settings in a sense for what they want to match you. If they want to match you, your vesting schedule, which is like, you know, I would say it's really important. What I saw working in retirement was we had a lot of obviously not campaigns, but obviously when you're working on tools and you're working on strategy, right. And you're seeing different types of employees and businesses. I think it dawned on you how much people may have missed out on because they didn't start sooner. And I think the biggest eye eye opener for me was sometimes even a year makes a really big difference. So that's something I wasn't like, even when I worked part-time jobs in college, right? I had a 401k there. I didn't understand it. Nobody explained it to me. So when I moved into my, you know, real world where now I'm in retirement and my boss is asking me if I have a 401k and I'm like, I don't know, do I like, where do I find it? And it's, it sounds ridiculous, but it's, you just, you don't know, right. You just don't know what you had. It makes you realize like, oh man, had I actually started saving seriously there and putting more of my paycheck in, there could have been a lot more in there. Right. And I think with the percentages, because you elect in most 401ks, you elect how much of your, of your paycheck you want to put into your 401k. Again, depending on the settings, I'd say a lot of times that money comes out and it's, it's not taxed. It kind of goes right into the 401k plan. So it's, it's there for you. And it keeps accruing because it's invested in whatever you elect. I would say that percentage, and there's a lot of tools out there now online, I think, like if you Google 401k calculators or how much can I save that actually tell you, if you just bump it up 1%, you will have this much more in retirement. And that number is like huge when you span it across 20, 30, 40 years. So I would say, look into it. I know there's tools out there, right? So I, I'm probably not doing a good job of explaining it because I'm like in logistics mindset of there's so many settings and companies can like choose so many things to do. But I would say pop up one of those calculators online. There's a lot of programs now that do want to focus on youth investing and learning how to invest. There's a lot besides 401ks that people can invest in, but I would kind of go through that and see, Hey, can something that maybe you can live without right now make a big impact down the line? I think it's a challenge getting across to young people. A lot of times, especially like within our community, I feel like in many cases we have parents who are either more blue collar fields or, you know, who weren't as familiar with all these more complex financial products did your school teach you about that or have you found like resources within the community or do you have any ideas about how we could reach Portuguese American youth with uh, financial literacy knowledge? I will say that's probably something that could be done more of. I wouldn't even know necessarily where to start besides just kind of compiling a list of different tools out there. And that would be awesome. By the way, I would love to help with something like that. I would say I never coming from like the blue collar, right. And different times, I feel like years ago, a lot of people had pensions and social security, right. It was not 401k and you contribute a certain percentage. So that's completely different. I never learned it in school, to be honest. Um, and I also wasn't in a lot of finance classes, maybe someone who's in that, you know, field gets more of it. So it was, right at me. And I'll be honest, if I wasn't working in retirement at my job, I don't know if I would have known, right? For a while, it could have been more time that passed that I would have figured it out. Maybe, hopefully you would hope. I feel like that's something that probably should be taught in school, right? Is how to save for retirement and how to apply for a mortgage and just different things that I feel like you learn when you get to, and sometimes it would be so much nicer to just be prepared with um, kind of a blueprint. But again, I think this goes back to our grit. 
sometimes we just don't have that blueprint and we've just got to figure it out. But if we could change that for the next generation, that would be huge. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a, a Palkus next gen project. If I ever heard one. Yeah. I was just Uh, about um, to say that, you know, (laughs) so like, obviously Palkus has created this, this team it's from 18 to 35. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and so we're, we're sort of been talking about different projects that we might be interested in that kind of thing. And it's really just like sort of a leadership development Academy. I know you talked a little bit about your experiences in leadership. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about sort of what those were and like what lessons you were able to pick up from any of the so conferences or whatever that it was that you, uh, had attended? Yeah, definitely. So I would say there were three different ones. Um, the first one I was in was pretty much developing how to approach a business idea. So for the company, right? Not you're starting a bakery. It was like within the business, where is there a gap? And how do you look at the ROI? How do you pull the resources together? And does it make sense? Is it something that could be done and something that is going to be effective? So that was the first one. It was primarily around there. The second one was more leadership focused. So that was not so much project leadership, but people leadership. And that one also brought in the business element because obviously you want to make sure that you're hitting your business's metrics and and key performance indicators. Um, So that does come in, but it was more so around people, different types of people leading a team. How do you motivate people? Everybody has a different background. Everybody's got different education. Everybody has a different experience, right? Nobody is in the next person's shoes. So how do you work with everybody and not only understand, but motivate them and coach them and get them to the next, you know, level. So that was a big part of it. It was also on yourself. So how do you brand yourself? So how do you have that executive presence and how do you present? So there was one thing that was really awkward when it happened, but I'm really happy that it happened. They filmed you presenting. And it was super awkward because you see yourself and my foot was like, my heel was on the floor. So like my whole sole of the shoe was up the whole time on video. And it it was terrible. It was such an eye opener, but people can hear themselves say, um, or look around or just things that maybe they wouldn't like to see themselves do. So that was big. Uh, So it was a lot about that. How do you present yourself? How do you present yourself? Not only to the leadership above you, but to your team and motivate them. And then the next one was then once you are a leader, it was more around situational leadership. So you conflict or something is going on, or again, more to coaching. Are you coaching to strengths? Are you coaching to weaknesses? How do you kind of analyze the situation in order to kind of get it to the next step? Because it's not one size fits all, right? You might perceive a training differently than Andrew might. You guys might just have different learning styles. So that was that third one. And do you think there's anything like sort of like whether it's your upbringing, culture, background that sort of positioned you in in terms of in particular with, you know, sort of people leadership and being able to understand different backgrounds, that kind of thing? Curious. I think honestly, being I keep going back to what you said about two worlds, right? Because I feel like that's so big. That's such a big point. I think. I always felt like I grew up between two different worlds, right? Because my parents, I'm being abroad in a Portuguese culture. I'm now in college and anybody who's not being abroad in that same culture doesn't get it like opposite. And you're trying to maneuver. And I think with me, and I don't know, right. If you guys could relate, but I think there was this perception that everything is just ABC. This is the path. And this is like what you do to get to the end result. Like it is flawless. Totally. Yeah. Like you follow it. There's no curves. There's no detours or pivots because then like the world combusts, right? It's you follow that straight line and that's going to result in this. And I think having to understand and say, okay, this is my culture. This is what I hold on to. These are things I believe in, right? They are principles I believe in. For me to make this career, you know, move or take this risk or something that's scary and like maybe isn't understood as being that linear experience, do I do it? You know, am I willing to to make that move? Am I willing to bet on myself in a sense 
and, and learn these things that are not like, to be honest, like I'm in implementation. I, that's not known, right. That's not, I'm not a surgeon. Like it's not known what we do. Sometimes I'm like, what did I do today? Like, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to explain it sometimes. So it's tough. I feel like you're always balancing those two different And that's two, like imagine somebody has a third culture thrown in or like something else, right? That's kind of, you really have to balance different things. So I feel like when it comes to people leadership, I just feel like we can relate. Like, I just feel like to different experiences, like it's not just, this is how it is. It's black and white. And like, that's it. They have to feel this way. They have to think this way. And like, they have to love work. They have to come in with a smile on their face every day. I think we understand that there's way more underneath that meets the eye. And I feel like that made it easy to just sit down and get people. And that was kind of how I went into it. It was, whether it's 401k, whether it's books, whether it is whatever it is, I didn't want people who worked with me to hate coming into work. Like I wanted them to feel understood. I wanted them to feel like I had their back. And if something was going on at home, I wanted them to know that as their leader, I knew that that's more important. I'm not sitting here telling you, how dare you? Like, you need to be like, this is more important. So I wanted to understand. And I do think that comes from the upbringing of trying to understand a lot, your parents, your friends, your teachers, like everyone. That's awesome. Yeah. And it, it I imagine that helped you a lot in that stage in college where you thought you wanted to do one thing and then you decide you want to do something else and really just dove headfirst into a field that you thought you might want to end up in. So do you have any specific advice for other young people uh, who find themselves in that situation? Because I know I have a lot of friends who, you know, just graduated, don't know what they want to do, uh, don't know where to turn. So, I mean, what you did sounds like a pretty brave and bold step to take. What advice would you have for somebody else who's confronted with a similar situation? I would definitely say the first is probably that the linear path, right? I had a college professor that told me that, and she was actually one of my law professors. And I remember thinking my law professor is going to be like this girl, like figure it out, get it together. Like, do you want to do this or do you not? She gave me the best advice where she pretty much said, sometimes the most successful journeys are not the straight ones. They're the ones that have curves. And that dawned on me because this is a professor telling me this, right? And she's not looking at it as linear. And she's saying, it's okay for you to explore these different things and classes. Um, So that was actually nice to hear because I felt like sometimes you don't hear that a lot. The other one, I would always say, trust your gut and, and bet on yourself. Because if you're between two decisions, I feel like sometimes we have that fear of the regret. If I make this decision... I'm going to look back and wish I hadn't done that. I think if you're confident and you can narrow out that decision, a is not like, that's not what your gut is telling you. That's not for you. If decision B doesn't work out, at least in my experience, I feel like you have the, I knew the other one wasn't it. So I decided to take a bet on myself and go this way. And you can say confidently, like the other one wasn't going to pan out. So I'd say, honestly, those are probably the most important is just keep that in mind and always, always, always give yourself the opportunity. Like, don't let what you think you should be or should have or what people are saying you should be or should have. Don't let that kind of block you out from any other opportunity that there could be, because then you're shutting yourself out of that, of that potential. What a mic drop. Like, that was awesome. Um, I don't know if there's anything, any other sort of messages that you think in particular young Portuguese Americans need to hear. I know, obviously, we talked about a whole lot of stuff from finance, uh, retirement stuff to, you know, kids books. But um, yeah, if you have any sort of messages that you think, you know, in particular, that young Portuguese Americans could benefit from. Honestly, I would say keep your head up let me think through this because this was like a big one for me growing up. I feel like always keep your head up, always believe in yourself for sure. Because again, there's so many different opinions that come at you. 
I would say what I've seen in the last few years with the Portuguese community is it's gotten bigger. It's more known. We have like more products everywhere. I get so excited when I see a Nata shop anywhere. Like, honestly, I, I, I mean, my dad told me there's one in Vegas, there's a Nata shop and like, there's one in California, there's one in New York city. And I was like, that's awesome. Like the one in New York city was literally at Rockefeller center. And I was just so proud because growing up, maybe it's because, you know, I was a kid and I didn't know what was around. Right. Maybe I just didn't understand, but I felt like you didn't see a Portuguese, Michelle, not the place in New York city at Rockefeller center in front of the Christmas tree. And I think now it's so cool that Portuguese Americans are like pushing ahead and like forging, like busting out of, you know, what they thought they had to do or busting out of that. Geez, they're just busting into the opportunity their families came here for, right? Like they're finally like punching right into it and taking that step. And it's so exciting and it gives me so much energy. So I feel like it's a great time for Portuguese Americans to do not forget your culture now. Like do not leave it behind because sometimes it feels like the culture doesn't fit with the career or the culture doesn't fit with the path you think you need to take. I say absolutely not. I feel like that's going to give you a leg up. And I think it's, again, such an exciting time to show off what Portuguese Americans can do. That really sums it up. It's amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> it's been awesome talking to you. Um, nice. It's been awesome yeah, talking to you guys. Yeah, just uh, one quick one. Like, I guess, what would you say is your favorite thing about being Portuguese? If you had to. You don't have one question. thing. I'm just saying. <laughs> Let's see. Just one thing. Just because you mentioned oh the notches, you know what I mean? I mean, honestly, that's like definitely up there right now because we just spoke about it. But I just like the experiences. Like, I love the culture and I love, honestly, I love being in a room of people who are not Portuguese and talking about Portugal. I will say yes. that's so cool. And especially when you can like drop a few words or I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's so cool to say, Hey, I had this experience and here's, you know, where my family lives and here's the different things we do. I don't know, just that exposure to what we grew up in. I, I feel like it makes us unique. That's my favorite thing, but that's because I'm like trying to nutshell it because it's like the food, it's the fagu, it's the songs, bimba, like I'll dance the bimba all day. Renshu, I'll do it all day. I love it all. I love it all. But really what I get like that, ah, that feeling is like, nobody knows what you're talking about. And you're just like, it's so cool. It's so awesome. Thanks so much, Andrea. No, thank you guys. Yeah. Thank and you. It's been a great conversation. For sure. Awesome. Well, right. thank you guys for having me. This was fun. Thank you for joining us on this week's Palkus's Next Gen. This week's podcast was brought to you by Palkus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. You can find this episode on iTunes, palkus.org, Amazon Music, and any place where podcasts can be found. The Next Gen logo is designed by Silveira Designs. This podcast is produced by Aaron Homem, with post-production by Scott Donnell of Run and Drum Media and original theme music by Pedro H. Da Silva. 